Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever thought about just giving up on being a Christian? Have you ever come to the point in your life where you, you really begin to question, is it, is it really worth it to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be one of his disciples? I mean, after all, sometimes wouldn't it be easier to just go along with the rest of the world? I mean, after all, the rest of the world, they, they look at the principles that we, that we find in the Scriptures, and at best, they consider those to be outdated, and, and at worst, they sometimes consider that to be hateful and, and bigoted. And sometimes, it seems like it would be easier to just go along with that than to hold fast to the Bible and to hold fast to Jesus and to our Christianity, Right? I mean, I felt like that at times, and I think most of us probably have from, from time to time. And the thing is, we're not really alone in that. As a matter of fact, there was a, a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago. It, was, uh, it has now become in our Bibles the book of Hebrews. And that letter was addressed to some Jewish Christians that were, were feeling a lot like that. They were wondering, is it really worth it to continue to hang on to Jesus and to follow Him? And so that book is just as relevant for us today as it was back then. So, so for a while, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Hebrews and studying it together. We're going to do that kind of like we did previously with the book of Romans. Rather than having a one sermon series that might end up being months and months and months long, we're going to kind of break it down into some bite-sized nuggets. And so what we're going to do for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at uh, the first part of the book up through about the middle of, of chapter 5. And then, Lord willing, what we'll do is we'll pick up again next year and take another bite-sized chunk and then probably finish it up some point after that. And I think that's good. I think it gives us some time to kind of reflect upon the things that we're learning and, and put those into practice. And it also gives us some kind of bite-sized nuggets. So that's how we're going to approach the book over these next uh, seven weeks or so. Now, we don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, just don't know. Even in the early church, they didn't know. You look at some of the early church fathers and the things they wrote, and, and nobody was really sure who wrote it. There have been all kinds of suggestions, everyone from Paul to Apollos to Barnabas to all kinds of people. We really don't know. So I'm not going to waste a lot of time there trying to figure out what a lot of people who are way smarter than me and, and who have much more uh, knowledge and education than I do, you know, they haven't been able to figure it out. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that either. But what we can do, we can tell from the book itself, we can get an idea of, of what the audience, who the audience was. We can get an idea of why the book was written and what its purpose is. We begin to understand that it's written to some Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, they had come to follow Jesus Christ, to put their faith in Him. But life got really difficult. Living as a, as a Christian there in the first century was not an easy thing to do. And so some of them got to the point where they were ready to just give up and to go back to their old Jewish faith. And in some ways, you can't really blame them. In, uh, in, in that culture, it was the Jews weren't really favored by the Roman government, but they kind of tolerated the Jews in a way that they didn't tolerate Christians. And so, so Christians were undergoing persecution that was much greater than the Jews. And also, like most religions, it was kind of easier to, to kind of just go through the motions of their old brand of Judaism rather than to follow the 
really what were amazing new teachings of this guy named Jesus and to try to live those out in their day-to-day lives. And so there was this, this tendency for them to want to go back to what was familiar. And that can also be a tendency for us too. So we're going to be looking at this book, the, the book of Hebrews, and, and trying to understand how it can help us to know for sure that it is worth sticking with Jesus. And that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is if, if you don't know Jesus already, if you haven't already put your faith in Him, that by the time we get done with this series, that you're going to know without a doubt that it is worth it to give your life to Jesus. And if you've already put your faith in Him, that you will know without a doubt that it is worth sticking with Jesus. So I want to kind of begin with the the overall idea or the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. And and here's what I would say it is. It is that Jesus is greater than anything or anyone else. I mean, that's really the theme if you just want to boil it down. The book of Hebrews, a lot of people consider it that it's a really difficult book to understand. I'd agree with it. It takes some work to kind of dig into it and understand it. But at the same time, it's so worth it because when we get done, we're going to have this beautiful, amazing picture of Jesus and, and who He is and what He's done for us that I think will, will help us to stay faithful and to stay true to Him no matter what we might go through in our lives. Now, this idea that Jesus is greater than, we've used that even for the the title of our sermon series, and it's based on one key word that we're going to find over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. It's the Greek word kriton. And it's a word that is translated, it's, it's found 13 times in the book of Hebrews. In the ESV that we're using, it's translated, I think, superior twice and better the other 11 times. Uh, and most translations pretty consistently Translate it one of those ways. It's a word that means for something to be more useful or more powerful or higher than in rank. And, and certainly Jesus is all those things and more, right? He's all those things and more. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the book. So, so be looking for that word superior, the word better, because we're going to talk about all the things, all the people that Jesus is better than, that he's superior to as we go through here. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the first chapter this morning, and you can go ahead and follow along. The the verses will also be up on the screen if you want to look at them there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's the, what we talked about earlier with the kids. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior, and there's that word kryton, as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's interesting, I was looking at some other sermons and some commentaries and stuff on the book of Hebrews this week, and it seemed like almost all of them took this first chapter and they kind of broke it down into two or three sections, and most of the pastors would preach two or three sermons on this, and I can easily see how that could be done. But as I, as I looked at this passage more and more, I began to realize that there is actually this common thread that runs throughout the, this entire chapter. And that common thread helps us to come up with the main idea that I want us to take away from this passage today. And here's the main idea is Jesus is greater than because he is not just a messenger, he is God's final message. He's not just a messenger, he's God's final message. And let me give you a little, uh, kind of a little background here, a little outline of of what we're going to see here in this chapter and and how all this fits together because I think we can see part of this we he begins here and he talks about prophets and we can understand how prophets are God's messengers right that's what they did they took the word of God and and they they would bring it as a message to, to God's people a lot of times they would write it down so we have it in what we would call the Old Testament today so they were God's messengers and he begins and talks about them at the, at the beginning of the chapter. And then he goes into this sevenfold explanation of who Jesus is, these seven characteristics of Jesus. And those seven characteristics he uses to show that Jesus is greater than the prophets. And then in verse 4, he turns to the angels. And, and we can understand how the, the prophets are God's messengers, but, but how do angels fit in there? Well, Many of you already know this, but the, the Greek word that is translated angels here is the word angelos, and it's a word that literally means messenger, or it means one who is sent. In some places in the New Testament, that word is actually used to, to describe a human messenger, somebody who just brings a message. And we know angels do a lot of things other than that, but one of their primary purposes is to be God's messengers. So we see both prophets and we see angels here as God's messengers. And, and I thought a lot about why does God, or why does the writer of Hebrews, why does he focus so much on angels here? And my initial thought was this, well, there must have been a bunch of angel worship going on among the Jews in the first century, but I did some research and really that wasn't the case. There was, there was one small group called the Essenes who lived in some caves near the Dead Sea, and, and they did include some angel worship in their brand of Judaism, but But other than that, it wasn't really widespread. So as I studied, as I thought about it some more, I think the reason that the writer, that the author speaks so much of angels here is if, think about it, in all of God's creation, the angels are the ones who would probably be considered to be superior to everything else. I mean, face it, they can do a lot of stuff we can't do as human beings, right? They're powerful. 
and, and people looked upon them, the Jews would have looked upon them as being really, if you want to look at God's created order, they'd be at the very top. And what he's doing is here is he's going to show Jesus is even better than that. And if Jesus is better than the angels, then you ought to stick with him. And so then he takes and he, and he uses seven different Old Testament scriptures here to prove the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels. So with that kind of overall view, let's go back and, and begin to kind of take some of this apart. We don't have time to look at every single verse, so I'm going to pull a few key ones out and then kind of make some observations that I think will be helpful to us. So if we go back to the very beginning, he writes this. He says, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's true. In, long ago, in the Old Testament times, God spoke many times in many ways, right? Sometimes he spoke audibly to people. He spoke to Adam and Eve. He spoke to Moses. Sometimes he spoke to them in dreams, like with Pharaoh and, and Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, God even spoke through a donkey, right? And he also spoke primarily, though, through the prophets, and they were the ones who took God's message and took it to the people. And so, so we look back and we see in the, in the Old Testament times that God spoke all these different ways. But the problem is, in that Old Testament revelation, we never get a full picture of who Jesus is. We get little bits and pieces here. But most of the Old Testament authors, they, they didn't fully understand who the Messiah was going to be. They didn't understand Jesus and what he was going to do. They give some little hints and here and there, but, but until Jesus comes along, we can't put all that together. I think that's what Paul is writing about. He often refers to this as the mystery. And he writes about it in a lot of his letters. We see him write about it in, in Ephesians chapter 3, for instance. He says, when you read this, the letter that he's writing, you can perceive my, inset, my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit. What he's saying is there's no way you could have understood everything about Jesus, but, but now that Jesus is on the scene, this mystery has been made known. He's not talking about mystery like, you know, Agatha Christie or the latest crime novel or something like that. He's saying it's something that couldn't have been known before, but now that Jesus is on the scene, it's fully revealed. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He says, long ago, you know, God spoke many times in many ways. But then he goes on in verse 2 to say this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, the first thing I want us to look at is that idea of last days. What does he mean by last days? I know this is an oversimplification, but I think here's how... I can maybe help us all understand what that is. If you want to look at, at all of God, all he's done, you can kind of break it down into, into three segments or three ages. First of all, you have creation, and God comes along and he creates everything out of nothing. And then secondly, you have Israel, and that's really what the Old Testament is all about, how God deals with his people Israel. And then finally, you have Jesus. And these last days, they begin when Jesus comes on the scene when, with his incarnation, when he puts on flesh and he lives on this earth, and that those last days are going to end when he comes back again and establishes a physical kingdom here on earth. So it's saying now in these last days, we're in the last days, that God has spoken to us by his Son. 
That's a really interesting phrase there. Literally in the Greek, you could translate it like this. He has spoken to us in Son. Now, spoke, spoken by His Son, I can get that. If we, if we think of it that way, we think, okay, yeah, Jesus came along and He spoke words and He spoke by His Son. But the idea of spoken to us in His Son, it means that Jesus not only spoke to us with His words, but with His life. As He lived life here on earth, as we were able to observe Him and see what He did and how He lived life, that all of that is speaking to us about God. And it's really important, the verb there, has spoken, it's an aorist verb. We've talked about this before. It means that at one specific point in time that God spoke to us by His Son, the time that Jesus was here on earth. And I can't, I can't overemphasize this point enough. That means that when Jesus came on to this earth, He became God's final message to us. There is no further revelation that we're going to get until Jesus comes back again. And you say to me, well, Pat, what about the apostles? I mean, didn't they write scriptures here? Yeah, they did. But what were they doing? They were just being witnesses to Jesus, right? They're writing down what they saw. They saw Jesus do. They wrote down the words. They wrote down some things in Paul's case that Jesus had revealed to him personally, but it wasn't any new revelation. It was what Jesus had already made known. And so we see here that, that Jesus becomes this, this final revelation of who God is. I'm reminded here of what happens in John chapter 14. And remember what there they're sitting around and, and after, the, after the Last Supper there, after the Passover Supper, they're talking and Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father. And remember how Jesus answered him? Have I been with you so long you, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm the final revelation. You look at me, you see the Father. You know everything that God wants for you to know about Him when you look at me. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Hebrews. That's what He says that in these final days. God has spoken to us in His Son. So why is it then that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be this, God, this God's final message? What is it that makes Him qualified? Why, why is He the one who can be the final message? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we have this, this seven-fold description of who Jesus is. And they all speak to, to some things that make Him uniquely qualified. And I'm not going to go through them one by one, but, but I want to kind of pick out some highlights here. And, and, and really three things that I think make you, Jesus uniquely qualified. The first one is this, that He is a completely different kind of message. Think about it. The prophets, they spoke the Word of God. Jesus, He is the Word of God. The prophets, it says, were God's servants. They were His ministers. It says Jesus is His heir. And so Jesus becomes this, this completely different kind of message. He embodies who God is and in, in, in who He is. 
And so he's uniquely qualified to be that final message because he's not just the messenger, he's the message itself. The second thing we see that makes him uniquely qualified is that he offers a completely different kind of salvation. The Old Testament prophets, when they came along, what did they communicate? They communicate, here's what you do to be right with God. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He comes along and he says, here's what I've done so that you can be right with God. He doesn't say, go and do. He says, it is done. And so he's a completely different kind of of salvation there. Then he, uh, in the next section here, he turns to angels. And in our culture, we get our ideas of angels where? From TV and movies and stuff like that. Not really accurate most of the time, probably. I guess probably the, the worst one I've, I've ever seen, it, some of you might have seen the movie Michael, where John Travolta plays this like chain-smoking, heavy-drinking, womanizing angel and and i suppose that that's bad enough but but at least most of us can figure out angels aren't really like that i think what might be more dangerous are some of the the movies and tv shows that portray angels as dead people who have somehow become angels because i think for a lot of us that that seems more plausible right but that's not what happened angels are a completely different class of created beings. No human being ever becomes an angel. And so here when, when, when the writer of Hebrews begins to talk about how the, the angels are, are so less superior than, than Jesus is, how he's so superior to them, they would have understood what angels are really like. Look, you look in the scriptures, angels are powerful. They're magnificent. When people see them, what do they do? They fall down in fear. So they're not these cute little things flying around like little cherubs. And, and so when, when, Jesus, when the writer says Jesus is better than them, they would have understood how insignificant, how important that was. And the way he shows that is he takes, he takes these seven different Old Testament scriptures to prove that. But he does it in kind of a unique way. He doesn't just quote them. He, he cites them probably out of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But he goes and he cites some, some uh, passages that we wouldn't nece- necessarily think of pointed to Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, I can tell you this, that the authors who wrote them and the people who originally heard them, they would have never thought they, that they applied to the Messiah at all. Now, we're going to look at this more in the Bible roundtable, so here's a shameless plug for that, if you want to stay with us afterward. But I want to, I want to show you just one example, because we just have time for this. And, and so he, in verse 5, he cites from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And here's what he says. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And in the context... Of Hebrews here, it's pretty clear. It's, it's saying that God the Father is saying to Jesus, you know, I'll be your father, you'll be my son. He's trying to prove that Jesus is the son of God here. 
But if you go back to 1 Samuel and you go to the chapter where you find that, you will find that's not the context at all. You'll find there that Nathan the prophet is speaking to David these words about his son Solomon. And what he's saying is that God is promising to David that after David is gone from this earth, that he'll be like a father to Solomon and Solomon shall be like a son to him. Now that doesn't mean that the writer of Hebrews is trying to pull something completely out of the scriptures that was never there. What he's doing is he's conveying an idea that was there all along but was kind of hidden. It's one of those mysteries. And now, led by the Holy Spirit, he is pulling out this meaning that shows that there was a deeper meaning behind that that pointed ahead to Jesus. And we're going to find that with all seven of these citations here. They don't necessarily look like things that would have pointed to Jesus, but I think what, what the author of Hebrews is trying to point out is that every place you look in the Old Testament, Jesus is there. You just have to look with the right eyes. You just have to have the right view of that. And when we put all those together, it leads us to the, to the third reason that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be this final message, and that is simply that He is God. He's God. You go back to verses 2 and 3, that sevenfold description, everything in there is about, it's about He is, he is God. Matter of fact, we talked about this, this earlier. It says there that He's the exact um, imprint of his nature. It says that back in verse 2. And just like I told the kids earlier, that means that he's a, he's a spitting image. He's a carbon copy of God the Father. He is because he's God in the flesh. And then in these, these seven different Old Testament passages, they all point to the fact that Jesus is God. God calls Jesus his son. He calls God the Father his father. And in the midst of all that, it even says that the angels worship Him. And the only one that the angels worship is God. So it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. That's why He's uniquely qualified to be God's final message. So we've seen this morning that Jesus is greater than because He's not just a messenger, He's God's final messenger. So what does that mean for us? In, in a practical sense, what are some of the implications for my life? I, I could come up with a multitude of them, but I, I'm going to just share two of them with you this morning that I think are really important. The first one is this, that God loves me more than I will ever know. Think about it. A God whose plan A from the very beginning was to send His Son to this earth to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for my sins, to pay the penalty for your sins. That shows that God loves us more than we could ever know. I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 when he writes this. He says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Oh man, if there's one thing that I, I pray you'll take away from here today, it's that you would leave here knowing that God loves you more than you will ever know. And because of that, it means that it is worth it to stick with Jesus. No matter what you're going through, it's worth it to stick with Jesus because God loves you and He proved it in His Son. The second implication is this. The answer is always Jesus. 
I know Joel will like this one. Reminds me of the story, you probably heard it. Uh, old pastor was going in to teach a children's Sunday school class. And he wanted to give an illustration. He wanted the kids to, to, to understand the, the illustration of the squirrel that he was going to use. So he goes in and begins to describe it. He says, now this animal, it lives in a tree. And he looks around, no kids are answering. He says, and it eats nuts. Looks around, kids are like, and it has a really bushy tail. And the kids still aren't saying something. Finally, this one kid kind of meekly raises his hand. He says, he says, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer must be Jesus. You know? And, and it is kind of a cliche to say the answer must be Jesus, right? And we kid Joel because when we were working on uh, our mission statement for the church, the, the running joke was always it had to spell Jesus, you know? And, and we can kind of make fun of that and have some fun with it, but the fact is the answer is always Jesus. There's a lot of other things that you can run after in this world to try to find hope, to try to find satisfaction, to try to find joy. I mean, there's plenty of them. There's, there's religion. There's pleasure. There's self-help books that you could go find out there. There's governments, there's politicians, there's church leaders and elders and pastors. The fact is, all of those things will ultimately disappoint you at some point along the line if you put your faith and your trust in them. But if you put your trust in Jesus, I can guarantee you that it will be worth sticking with Him no matter what. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is your final message. Father, thank you that as we look at him, we see you. And Father, I want to pray maybe for some today who have never put their faith in you. I pray today that they would understand why they can depend on Jesus and that they would put their faith in him. For the rest of us that have already done that, I pray you would help us to hold fast to you and who you are. Ask that in his name. Amen.